Welcome to this week's Rashi Shir, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And welcome to the Shir on Rashi. And this week we are up to Perak Tet Vav, Pasuk Hay. So Perak Tet Vav is a very significant Perak. It is the Brit Ben Habatarim, the covenant between the pieces. Tonight we'll find out exactly why it's called the covenant between the pieces, which really sets the course of Jewish history. Uh, at least according to the Midrashim, the, it, uh, it, it foretells something that's going to happen over the next several thousand years. Uh, and according to the simple Peshat, it foretells what's going to happen over the next 400 years. So we've got to the point where last week um, Hashem said to Abraham, you'll get great merit. And then Abraham observed or complained that he didn't have children. And without children, this was all of limited use. So we read as follows in Pasuk Hei, he took him outside, that's Hashem took Abraham outside, and he said, look, although well, later on we'll see a better translation of Habet, please look to the heavens, and count the stars, if you are able to count them, and he said, still Hashem, lo to him, so will be your descendants. So in answer to the question, will you have children? Yes, and you will have lots and lots of descendants. Okay, Rashi has quite a lot to say on Pasuke. He actually brings three interpretations of the Yotze Otoha Chutza. And Benji is going to ask, um, why we need all three, what's the deficiency in each one, and I'll take a little bit of credit for training you to ask that question, and I'm not going to answer it satisfactorily, because I'm not entirely sure, but we'll see how we go. So first he brings the simple pshat. Lefi pshuto, according to the simple meaning, he took him out from his tent to the outside, to see the stars. So since the subject of what Abraham is told to look at is the stars, and his tent presumably had a roof, so he couldn't see the stars, so he needs to go outside to see them. Simple shot. The obvious question, though, is does Hashem really need to take him outside? Could he not give him a vision of stars inside the tent? And perhaps that is why Rashi brings a Midrashic explanation. And then he brings another Midrashic explanation, which is where I get a little bit stuck. But we'll see what I mean. So the, having this, uh, he's brought the pshat that Hashem took him outside. And then he says, according to the Midrash, he said to him, Hashem said to Abraham, say, go from your astrology. So go out means go out from your mindset. And we'll see in a moment what that mindset was. So it's not a literal going out. And this is the difference between the Pshat and the Midrash. The Pshat is physically go out the tent, and the Midrash is go out of your mindset. But apparently there might not have been a need to physically move at all. And the mindset is related to the stars, because you see in your astrology, Shara'ita b'mazalot, because you have seen in your, literally in your constellations, i.e. your astrology, Sha'enacha atid lahamid ben that you are not in the future going to raise up a child. So this, says Rashi, says Hashem, was Abraham's problem. The reason that he was very worried about having children was because he had seen his mazal, his uh, star horoscope, if you like, that he would not have children. But Hashem says, you've missed the point. Abraham, sorry, Avram ein lo ben, al aval Avraham, Yesh lo ben. Avram won't have a son, but Avraham will have a son. Because Avram didn't know, but his name was going to be changed. So he's been looking in the stars for what's going to happen to Avram. And he finds that Avram does not have a child. By the way, Avram does. We'll come back to that. But Avraham is not going to, is, is in a different matter altogether. Avraham is going to have a child. Now, by the way, Rashi doesn't say this at this point, but the Gemara says, Ein mazal Yisrael. The Jewish people's fate is not determined by the constellations. 
which is also interesting because we're a little bit into constellations. Every time we wish somebody Mazal Tov, today it means congratulations. But it used to mean, may you have a good constellation, may your horoscope be good. Although the Gemara says, Ain Mazal Yisrael. And I have to confess that I always thought there was a problem with this Rashi, because what's the big deal if Abraham, Avram, sorry, is not destined according to the stars to have a son, but Abraham is destined by the stars to have a son, in which case, came Mazal Yisrael, there is still a constellation, an, an astrology, which is controlling the Jewish people, so, or controlling Abraham. So if the, the constellation says Abraham won't have a son, but Abraham will have a son, then where's the Ein Mazal Yisrael? Where's the Jewish people are not under the constellation? And I missed the point until I was preparing this very ship when I realized and I saw that what it means is Abraham is under the control of the stars, but Abraham is not under the control of the stars at all. It doesn't mean that Abraham will have a son and that's predicted in the stars. It means once your name is changed from Avram to Abraham, you are beyond the remit of the stars. So Abraham, Yeshlo Ben, that is because Hashem says so, not because of the stars. Continuing this idea, Sarai Lotelet, it's written in the stars that Sarai will not have, will not give birth. Aval Sarah Teled, but Sarah with a hey, once her name is changed, and following this idea, she's beyond the remit of the stars, she will have, she will give birth. So the second shot of Rashi, well, not shot, the second approach of Rashi is say, me it's the nikinot shalacha. Go out from your astrology because you don't belong under the astrological control. And that's what Abraham is being taught at this point. And that's the say, that's the go out, go out from that mindset. By the way, Avram does have a son before he becomes Avraham. To whom am I referring? He has the son Yishmael. So how can we understand that Avram ain't no Ben? So there's a Ben and there's a Ben. So there's a Ben who will be his successor. There's a Ben, your descendants will be called in Yitzchak. So obviously Rashi understands Ben here as a Ben who will carry on your way, a Ben, a son who will be a true inheritor, a true successor. That won't be Ishmael. So you will have a child. I'm not quite sure what the word for that type of child will be, but it's not Ben. You will have a child, but it won't be a Ben until you're Abraham. Interestingly, the Rashi changes the, Lashi changes the expression for Sarah. Abraham, Yeshlo Ben, but Sarah, Teled. Sarah will, Sarai will not give birth, and Sarah will give birth. And that fits beautifully, because Sarai didn't give birth at all. The difference between Sarai and Sarah was 100%. It was 180 degrees, or pi radians, that Sarai will have no children at all. Thank you, Sarah. But um, Sarah will have a child, whereas Abraham, it doesn't say Holid will begat a child, and Abraham will not begat a child, because Abraham will begat a child. He will begat Ishmael, but he won't be a Ben. So Abraham, Abraham won't have a Ben, even though he has a Ishmael, but Sarai, Lotele, she won't give birth at all. Okay, continues Rashi. Ani hamazal. I will call you by a different name, and the Mazal will be changed. But as I've explained, that means the Mazal will have no longer an effect on your names. That's if we want to fit this in with the principle of Ein Mazal Yisrael. And then he says, <coughs> another explanation. So this is Midrash number two. And it says, <laughs> He brought him out from the space of the world. What does that mean? <laughs> and he put him above the stars. So <laughs> means the space where the world is, i.e. where we all live. We and 8 billion other people, we live on the space of the world. But he took him out from that space to above the stars. Now, again, you can say that this is a physical manifestation of the ideological idea of the previous explanation. The previous explanation was go out from your mindset, your astrology-directed mindset. And now the, uh, the physical complement of that is go out from the world and have a completely fresh look at things. But it's also dictated 
by the text. And Rashi is never too far away from explaining how the words fit, because he says, uh, and this is an expression of habata. You remember, Hashem said to him, habet na hashamayma, look at the heavens. And the word for habet, look, was habet. Says Rashi, that means milamala lamata, from above to below. So the simple idea of what Rashi is saying is that habet must mean look down. So look down on the stars. The only way you can look down on the stars is if you are above the stars, which by the way, can't physically happen. Um, so again, that's why I say it's, it's just a physical manifestation of the idea of come out from your mindset. Interestingly, the word habet does not always mean look from above to below. For instance, Lot was told, Al-Tabit, don't look behind you when you leave Saddam. And his wife did look behind. So that will be looking laterally. So the Maharal explains that when what Rashi means is habet means gaze at a particular point, like focus in here maybe. Um, I'm not quite sure how that works being above the stars. I think the idea is when you're below the stars, you can't focus in on the stars because they're just like all around you. When you're above the stars, if you're looking down, um, there's, there's you, there's the stars, there's the earth. So presumably what the Mara means is you can focus on the stars when they are a self-contained set below you in a way you can't when they are everywhere above you. So that, that's because habet doesn't always mean look down as Rashi seems to imply here. So the Maharal has to explain that it means gaze, focus in one particular direction. Okay, so that is Rashi's three explanations. I apologize in advance, but I can't tell you exactly why he, does it, he needs both two and three. I explained why one is insufficient, even though it's the pshat, the simple meaning he took him outside the tent, but that raises the question, why did he need to take him outside the tent? Hence Midrashic answer. But why he needs Midrashic answer two and three? Well, three is relevant for the word habet, so maybe he could have managed without two. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Okay, then we have Pasuk Vav, but I'm gonna read Vav, Zion, and Chet together, because Rashi does as well. So Vav says, He believed in Hashem, or I prefer the translation, he was faithful to Hashem, he was loyal to Hashem. Emunah, I think, is more loyalty than belief. And he considered it for him as Sadaqah. Now, obviously, we've got a problem of who considered what for whom. We'll come back to that. Pasuk Zion, on which actually Rashi's got nothing to say explicitly. He said to him, as Hashem said to Abraham, I am Hashem who took you out from Ur Kastim, Ur of the Chaldees, to give you this land as an inheritance. So whereas up till now, the focus has been the promise of children, now it's the promise of the land. <coughs> and in Pasuket, Vayomer, he said, and obviously it's Abraham saying, Hashem Elohim, God, with what will I know, ki irishena, that I will inherit it. And this is the famous Abraham asking for proof of Hashem's promise. So let's see what Rashi has to say on Vayimin Bashem. Says Rashi, Vayimin Bashem, lo sha'al lo ot alzot, he did not ask for him for a sign for this. Abraham did not ask for a sign to confirm that he would have all these children. But about inheriting the land, he asked for a sign. And he said to him, with what will I know? So first of all, Rashi is reading Pasuket at this stage as Abraham is asking for proof, asking for some sign to confirm Hashem's promise. Uh, when we get further on, Rashi will give an alternative explanation. Now, the question is, well, first of all, why uh, we, we can explain why Abraham was worried about that. Um, maybe Abraham feared that even though his children would get the land, but they would sin and then they would no longer deserve the land, and then they wouldn't be the permanent inheritors of it. Or 
he was worried that the Canaanites would deserve to lose the land because they were so wicked. But maybe the Canaanites will do Teshuva. Everyone's got the possibility of doing Teshuva. And then they'll come back to the land and the Jews will move out. So either way, he's worried that the inheritance of the land won't be permanent. Now, that's a reasonable um, question. And for him to doubt that his children will always be righteous, that's quite reasonable. Nevertheless, it's not quite right. If Hashem says your children are going to inherit the land, even a doubt that comes from a reasonable place, a righteous place, is it's still, still a doubt on Hashem's word. And it's a little bit, a little bit off. Which brings me on to say, why is Rashi saying this on the words the Hemin Bashi? Rashi is telling us that Hashem, uh, Abraham didn't ask for a sign about the promise of children, but he did ask for a sign about the promise of the land. Mandakar Shemei, well, who, who's talking about that? Where does this come into the words the Hemin Bashem? And the answer is, once you think about it, it's quite obvious. That is Rashi's explanation of why the Torah needs to say the Hamin Bashi. Because if Hashem is promised something and he accepts that, wow, that's going to happen. I mean, is that a big deal for Abraham? We, we know Abraham. We know that he's a tzaddik gomer. And we know that he follows Hashem wherever Hashem tells him to go. And if we read ahead, we know he's going to offer up his only son because Hashem asked him to. So is it a big deal that, Hashem, that Abraham believed in Hashem's promise? So why does the Torah need to say, V'amin Hashem? Rashi is saying that what it means is he believed in Hashem in this respect as opposed to the respect in which he didn't. So Be'amin Hashem means on this one, he believed in Hashem. But about Yerusha Ta'aretz, about inheriting the land, he sort of didn't believe in Hashem. That, says Rashi, is what the Pasuk means when it says Vermin Bashi. Let's move on. So then Rashi continues on the words, Ve'yachshverha lo tzedakah. Hashem consider, well, um, Rashi's going to say who the subject of Ve'yachshverha is. Ha'kadosh baruch hu, chashava la'avram l'zakut u'letzedakah al ha'emunah she'hemin bo. Hashem considered it as a tzedakah for Avraham, and a merit, and it's a merit and a tzedakah that he on the emunah that he believed in, the the either belief that he believed in or the faith or the loyalty that he remained loyal in. So the problem is, um, as I often say, the problem of pronouns. Pronouns are a challenge for reading the Chumash because we don't know who regarded whom as a tzedakah. It could be that Abraham regarded what Hashem said as righteous. But that's not, says Rashi. Rashi says it follows straight on from Vermin Bashem. And as a consequence, Hashem considered what Abraham had done as tzedakah, as righteousness. Interestingly, Rashi adds a word, zechut. He adds the word zechut. And in the words of the Mizrahi, that's because tzedakah is normally done from higher to lower. You know, a rich person gives tzedakah to a poor person. A big person gives tzedakah to a small person. So it's hard to say that Hashem considered what Abraham was doing as tzedakah towards Hashem. So the Mizrahi says that's why Rashi adds the word zechut, which is more, I suppose, uh, bilateral, that Abraham considered it a merit. Uh, sorry, Hashem considered it not just tzedakah on Abraham's behalf towards Hashem, but as a chut, something that gains chut, something that gains merit for Abraham. Then Rashi says, Dava acher. But there's another explanation of the ma'eda. Why does he say another explanation? I think it's just because there's the obvious problem with the first explanation. Um, maybe there are other answers, but obviously the idea that Abraham is lacking in emunah is problematic. And there's another explanation that says he's not lacking in emunah. <coughs> he says, Dava acher. He didn't ask for a sign about that his children will inherit the land. But he said before him, Abraham said before Hashem, make known to me in which merit will my children endure in it. In other words, I understand you're saying 
that the Bnei Israel are going to inherit the land. I understand you're going to say it's going to stay forever, but on what basis is it going to stay forever? I want to know with what merit. Now, the assumption, obviously, is that they're going to need merit. Why will they need merit? Because they're going to sin. Either he knows that they're human beings, or even worse, he knows they're Jews, and Jews have a habit of being disloyal to Hashem. So he knows they're going to sin. So he knows that they're going to need extra zechut to maintain their presence in the land. And I want to know what is that zechut. Hashem said to him, the merit of the sacrifices. And that introduces what comes next. And that line actually is Rashi's understanding of the whole business with the animals, which we're about to see. Now, by the way, um, I said earlier that Abraham is worried um, uh, that, and that's why Abraham was worried that the children won't stay in the land because they will sin, or the Canaanites will do teshuva. And that was the first explanation of Rashi, that he wasn't quite believing that his children will inherit the land. It's not dissimilar from the second explanation of Rashi. The second explanation of Rashi says, okay, I know they are going to stay in the land forever, but I don't understand how, because logically they should be kicked out at some stage. Now, to either of them, the response, Rashi doesn't actually say this, the Ramban says this, is what happens next. We now start the process of the Brit. The Brit is a covenant. I'm quoting the Ramban here, but I think it fits for Rashi as well. A Brit is a covenant which cannot be cancelled. A promise is sort of inherently conditional. And if you cease to fulfill the condition, then sometimes the promise becomes null and void. But a Brit, a covenant, <coughs> is irrefutable. It can never be changed. There are other people out there who say that the covenant the Jew, God gave, made with the Jews was replaced by a new covenant and a New Testament and all that direction. But that can't be. That can't be. The Brit here, the Brit Benavitarim, and the Brit that Hashem made with the Jewish people, first at Sinai and then in Arab Moab, um, as we read about in last week's Etc., and we'll read a bit later on in the end of the Torah, that Brit is forever. So Abraham's concern that the, the Yerushat Ha'aretz, the inheriting of the land, will be time-bound, is refuted by making a Brit. Okay, so where were we? So Rashi's first explanation of the Ma'ida, which he brought in his context of explaining Vamin Bashem, and notice, um, I said that Rashi puts Vav, Zayin, and Chet together because they have to be understood as one unit because their Min Bashem, the way Rashi explained it the first time, is in contradistinction to how Hash, uh, Abraham uh, responded after the second promise, the promise of Yerusha Ta'aretz, which came in Pasuk Zion, and the response came in Pasuk Chet. So in order to understand Pasuk Vav, you have to compare it to Pasuk Zion and Pasuk Chet, which is why Rashi bundled them all together. Now, according to the second explanation, how do we read the Pasuk? Because the words fit very nicely with the first explanation. Bama Eida, with what will I know, ki arishanu, that they will inherit it, or I will inherit it. With what will I know? And Rashi's translating it, according to the second explanation, is with what merit will they keep it? So you have to turn the words around a bit, which you're entitled to do. Rashi does it himself from time to time to say the words are written in this order, but the meaning is if they're written in a different order. So their meaning is, Eida, which Rashi said, Odi'ani, let me know, Vama Ereshena, with what will they inherit it? So even though the words are, with what will I know that they will inherit it? Rashi's reading it according to the second explanation as, let me know with what they will inherit it. And the answer to that question is the merit of the korbanot. Um, and it also fits nicely with the way we also explain the first explanation, which is Abraham saying they're going to sin, and Hashem says, don't worry, because there is a process of kapara. The process of kapara is called build a Bet Mikdash, or build a Mishkan, and bring korbanot with which you get kapara. I'll just jump ahead and I'll say, so what do we do today? Today we don't have a Bet Mikdash. Baruch Hashem, we have Israel. How come? So the answer is, we learn about the Korbanot. That's why every morning at the beginning of Shacharit, we have Ezim Okuman, and we have various uh, uh, paragraphs from the Chumash learning about the Korbanot. And more generally, the, uh, the Shas contains, uh, let's say about a third, is relevant to Korbanot. I'll just go on a hobby horse here, but uh, 
there is this view that the rabbis recreated Judaism post-temple and they defeated the priests who controlled the temple and they created a new Judaism which didn't need the temple anymore. So this is rubbish for many, many reasons. And one of those reasons is, if you read the words of Chazal, post-temple, it's all about the Bet Mikdash and the details of Masechet Tzvachim and Masechet Menachet and, and basically the whole of Kadshim is the rabbis after the Bet Mikdash understanding how they can get back to the Bet Mikdash and so that they're ready as soon as the Bet Mikdash is rebuilt. And we need to learn all that stuff because in the absence of being able to bring Karbanat, how are we going to get our Kapara, which is the way that the Jewish people will stay meriting the land? The answer is we will learn about the Karbanat. Okay. Now, I said that the, the Rashi, this last word on Pasuk uh, Chet is very important, the last two words. Because you, Rashi uses that to explain what happens next. So in Pasuk Tet, he said to him, and we can see from the context, it's Hashem saying to Abraham, take for me, well, Egla means calf, and Mushaleshet, well, let's see what Rashi says, Mushaleshet means, straight away, Egla Mushaleshet, Shlosha Egalim, three calves. And Rashi, as we'll see, Rashi explains what are the three calves or the three cows or the three bulls to be precise. And um, so how does he read the word Mushalesha? Because others want to read it as a third, like a calf that's one third grown. But Rashi needs to explain it as meaning three, as we will see very soon. So Rashi has a knee, but it means three. So he understands Egla Mushalesha means Egla is the species. So species of calf. And what form will that species take? Answer, Mushalesha. It will be in the form of three. So when it says Egla Mushalesha, it means three calves. And then he goes on to say the Ace Mushalesha, three goats, the Ayol Mushalash, three rams, the Tor, the Gozo, and a dove and a youngling, a young dove. So why this particular menagerie? The way Rashi counts it, we've got um, nine animals and two birds. Why nine animals? Now, the answer is, remember, this is the answer to the question of the ma'eda. With what will I know? According to the second explanation, let me know what they will deserve. So the answer is the korbanot. So Abraham is being shown a number of different korbanot. Now, there are lots of different korbanot that are brought in the Bet Mikdash. These don't cover all of them, but there is a common theme as we will see. So why three cows, or three, which is equivalent to three bulls? Says Rashi, shlosha elagalim, remez shlosha parim. This is an allusion to three bulls, which are brought as sacrifices. Har yom kippurim, the bull which is brought by the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. So a very, um, presumably very rarely used korban, but we spend time learning the details of it. It's all described in Pasha Vayikra. If the Bet Din makes a mistake in their halakha and the whole people go and follow their instruction, which is erroneous, then there is a special korban that the Bet Din bring because the whole people have sinned. Um, its, process, its procedure is a little bit like the parashel Yom Kippurim. In other words, its, it's blood is sprinkled um, on the parochet. doesn't go inside the Kodesh Kodeshim like the blood of the uh, calf on Yom, uh, the bull on Yom Kippur, but it's sprinkled on the, on the parochet, on the curtain. Um, anyway, it's called the Pahe Elem Shel Tzibor, the bull which is brought about something that was hidden from the community. The Egla Arufa. The Egla Arufa is the calf that is brought where a body is found out in the uh, uh, outside the town, and uh, there's a process described in the Pasha Shoktim, whereby you measure which is the nearest town, and the elders of that town bring this calf, which actually is not slaughtered in a normal way, but is put to death. And there's a process to, as it were, cleanse the land of the sin that has been committed by the murder of this individual. And they still look for the murder as well, by the way. What, what links these three bulls? Because there's many other bulls which are brought. For instance, the Korban Musaf, um, every Yomtev has one or two bulls um, 
brought on Sukkot, actually it's many more, it's a total of 70. So why don't you mention those bulls? And the answer is very simple, because these are all bulls that come for a kapara, for an atonement. And not for an individual atonement, but for a communal atonement. The one that's not quite fitting to that pattern is the first one, the Parshim Yom Kippurim, because that's actually the bull of Aaron alone, or the Kohen Gadol alone, and he brings it to bring kapara for himself and for his family and for his, kohan, his fellow kohanim. But he needs to bring that before he can bring the uh, goat, which brings atonement for all Israel, because only somebody who's atoned themselves can then bring atonement for other people. So even though the partial Yom is for a limited group, nevertheless, it leads to a kapara for the whole of Israel as does the Pahel and Tzibar, the one that is brought when the whole crowd make a mistake. And the Eglorufa is brought because everyone's got some responsibility in not looking after this person who ended up dead. So these are all, a little bit of a stretch, all communal atonements. And that fits perfectly with the model that Rashi is creating here, that this is the answer to the question of how will the Jewish people maintain their residence in Eretz Israel? Because when they sin, they will get kapara through these sacrifices. So we can carry on with the next lot, the Eiz Mushalashev, the three goats. Remez l'seir The This alludes to the goat which is done inside, i.e. the goat which is brought on Yom Kippur. There were two goats, you remember? One is the Seir HaMishdalech, which is sent away, the so-called scapegoat. And the other is offered pretty much together with the bull uh, inside the Bet Mikdash, inside the Kodesh Kodashim. And that obviously brings atonement for Klal Yisrael. And the next one is Seire Musafim Shalmoed. On every Yom Tov, as we read in Parshat Pinchas, there are various Musafim, a number of bulls and rams and sheep. And there's always a Seir, the Chatat, a Seir as a goat, as a sin offering. Because on every um, on every uh, Chag, there's a need for a sin offering, which is brought on behalf of Klal Yisrael. And the goat of an individual uh, sin offering. If an individual commits the sin of Avodah then they bring a Seir. Now, in a sense, this is, um, now we're talking about a sin offering for an individual, but as far as I understand it, it's the sin offering that every individual in Klal Yisrael can bring. So it's there for the entirety of Chal Yisrael. So three goats, each of which are a type of sin offering. But Ayom Shulesh, three rams, Asham Vadai, Asham Talui, the Kivsa Shal Chatat Yachid. So these are all different types of um, sin offering in a general sense. They're not all Chatat because the first two are Asham. So an Asham is called a, translated as a guilt offering. It's pretty similar to a sin offering. But certain sins require an asham. It's a slightly different process, slightly different sacrificial procedure. And it's a ram, not a sheep. Um, the, an asham vadai is if you certainly committed a sin for which you need to bring an asham, you bring the asham. An asham tolui is if you're not sure if you've committed a sin or not. The classic example the Gemara always refers to is if you have two bits of what look like fat in front of you. One is fat which is kosher to eat, and one is fat which is not kosher to eat. And you're not sure which one you ate, or you weren't sure, you are sure which one you ate, but you weren't sure which was which, because they're identical. So you don't know if you've sinned or not, you bring what's called an asham talui, which is an asham, a guilt offering, but talui, it's dependent. And if you then find out what, which one you actually ate, then you might bring a khatat, a regular sin offering. And so those are both asham vada and asham talui are both types of guilt offering, which bring atonement, and the third one, kivsa shel chatat yachid. So a regular sin offering, not for a bodhisattva, not for idolatry, is a sheep. By the way, we have a little bit of a problem here because we're talking about a ram and a kivsa is feminine, as the word suggests. So we have to say that Rashi is talking about the sheep species in general. When Hashem says, eil mushuleshet, three rams, it doesn't dafka mean three rams, it means three from the sheep family. And the third one is a remes to the sin offering for regular sins that the individual brings. So the nine animals we have explained as referring to nine different korbanot, each one brings kapara, brings atonement. The tour of a gazel and a bird and a young one, which Rashi translates as tur u ben yonah. 
What's Rashi done? He's transformed it into the phraseology that we're very familiar with. Because certainly many, many places in Vayikra, for instance, and elsewhere, um, they come as a pair. You bring a tour and you bring oh, either a tour or a benyona. One means a pitcher or a dove which has reached a certain age, and a benyona is a dove which hasn't reached a certain age. Um, so Rashi simply replaces Torah Begozal with Torah or Benyona because that's what we're not familiar with. And he doesn't spell out what type of sins they have brought for, but we know there are many occasions when they're used as a chatat. We know because we've learned the parashiyot in Vayikra, and we know they're used as a chatat. So all 11 birds and uh, um, beasts are representative of korbanot, and they're all korbanot, which brings a chatat. Okay. Any questions? Okay, let's move on. Yes, Sarah. Sorry, it's going back slightly. Um, in Pasuk Bav, I'm wondering if you could explain the function of the hay in Vayach Shavir. Uh It. Hashem considered it. Okay, it doesn't denote um, masculine, feminine. It is feminine, but it refers to the emunah which is a feminine yeah. noun. Okay. Does that answer it? Yes, yeah, so like that's why Rashi explains it as... Yeah, and here actually he puts, al, uh, in fact you've shown me, which I hadn't fully appreciated, HaKadosh Baruch Hu HaShava, without the hey, LaAvram LeZuchut LeZdaka Al HaEmunah. So the Emunah SheHeMinbo that he displayed, the belief that he believed in. Okay. So. It's clear, actually, and I haven't seen this really but until now, until you direct my attention to it. Al Emunah is Rashi's explanation of the hay at the end of Be'ach Shvecha. Okay. Hashem considered it. So Rashi actually supplies what the it is, and it has to be a feminine noun. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, now we come to Pasuk Yud. And something now, a little bit weird, happens to these animals. And it's important to note, and I'll say this in advance, that Rashi now sees the symbolism take on a new form. Same animals, but no longer representing sacrifices, representing something else entirely. So they're same animals, but two messages. And the next message starts like this. So Pasuk Yud, et kol eila, he took for him all these. Remember, Hashem said to him in Pasuk Tet, kachli, take for me, this bunch of animals. So Abraham did that. He got the animals. Vayivater um, otam, and he split them. Vatavech in the middle. Vayatein ish bitro, and he put each piece likrat raehu, literally meeting its friend. In other words, two half of a cow, uh, one half opposite the other half. Vayetatzipor, and the bird, even though bird, so I mean bird species. Lo vatar, he did not split. So you've got nine animals and two birds, and he splits some of them. Now, there's a message in the splitting, and there's also a message, a quite separate message actually, in the non-splitting. So you've got to bear all this in mind. It's, it's, by the way, um, well, Rashi doesn't say this, but Rambam says, for instance, it was a vision. It didn't happen literally. He didn't just happen to have these animals uh, available. Rashi doesn't say that, but just uh, you can bear that in mind. But what we're going to see soon is definitely going to be more of a vision. Pasuk Yud, Rashi, the other time, he split them. Chalek kol echad chalakim. He split them into two portions, each one. Ve'ein ha-mikra And the Pasuk does not leave the hands of the simple meaning. Now, by the way, this is a phrase which comes up in the Gemara, and it's sort of Rashi's mantra that Rashi says, I've only come to teach you the Pshuto Shomikra, the simple meaning of the text. But the way the Gemara phrases something similar is the Mikra, the, the Pasuk, does not leave the Pshat. There's always a simple way of explaining it, which actually fits in with the words. You might bring Midrashi explanations as well, but there is a simple explanation, a straightforward one, I should say. And that fits very nicely because there's going to be two explanations of this. There's going to be a, if you like, a midrashic reason, a symbolic reason why they're cut. But there's also a straightforward reason why they're cut. And that's what Rashi introduces here. Lefi shahaya korait imo brit. 
because he was literally cutting, but I'll translate that as making with him a covenant. God was making with Abraham a covenant. To keep his promise. I said earlier that a Brit is like a super promise. A Brit is a promise that must be kept. To cause his children to inherit the land. So Hashem is making a Brit. Now, how do we know he's making a Brit? Because it says, just a few sukim later, that's the first reference to the Brit, which is why Rashi quotes it here. On that day, Hashem made with him a Brit. Now, the word Korait Hashem, Brit, and with the verb that goes with Brit, is not Oseh, to make, but is Korait, to cut, even though we translate it as to make. Why do we talk about cutting a covenant? Here comes the answer. The Derech Korate Brit. And it was the way of those who literally cut a covenant, to split an animal, and to walk, to pass between the two halves. As we say in Sefer Yemiyahu, talking about people making a covenant, there the passage says explicitly, these people making a covenant, they walk or they pass between the pieces of the agel. So pause for a minute, and I was about to say something else. So why does Abraham cut these animals? Well, we're going to bring a midrashic, uh, a symbolic explanation. But before we do that, there's a straightforward explanation. Hashem is making a covenant and with Abraham. And when you make a covenant, you walk between pieces. Why do you walk between pieces of animal? Well, Rashi Yumiyahu says something not so uh, friendly, that if you don't keep the covenant, you'll end up like the animal, cut into two. A rather nicer version, um, which is found elsewhere, is two people making a covenant are like two halves of a whole. Uh, and that's symbolized by the two halves of an animal, which they're not one anymore, but they were one. And the two people making a covenant are like two halves becoming one. So it's either a threatening one or, or a quite hopeful message. But anyway, that was the way people made covenants. And that's why it's correct for it to cut a covenant, because cutting the animal is an integral part of making the covenant. So Abraham is told to cut the animals because they're going to walk through the pieces of the animals just like people making a covenant. Now, how do they walk between the animals? Well, Abraham doesn't, and Hashem sort of doesn't. Because, um, uh, let's carry on with Rashi. Um, so Rashi is referring to a Pasuk a little bit later. Yeah, in Pasuk Yud Zayin. Uh, let's just read Pasuk Yud Zayin for a minute. <coughs> the sunset, and it was dark. Um, fiery oven, fiery furnace, and a torch of fire, which passed between these cut-up pieces. So remember that, a torch of fire passed between the pieces. So if we go back to our Rashi, Afkan. Uh, so having said, quoting the Pasuk from Yimiyahu, the way of people making a covenant was to split an animal and walk between them. Afkan Tanur Ashan Velapid Aish, the fiery furnace and the fire and the torch of fire, Asher Avar Ben Hagazarim, which passed between the pieces, who Shalucho Shoshina Shahu Aish. Now it seems that it's not clear if it's one thing or two. We'll talk about that more when we get to Pasuk Yudzayim, whether it's one fiery furnace and one torch of fire, but either of them or both of them are shlucho shel HaKadosh Baruch They're the representatives of Hashem because Hashem Shechina is in many places identified as fire. Now, just by the way, so that is how Hashem walks between the pieces. Abraham has a vision of this fiery torch walking between the pieces. Now, in the way of those who make a Brit, it's normally two parties that walk between the pieces. And here it's just one because Abraham doesn't walk between the pieces. And maybe that's what Rashi means when he said um, earlier on in the same Rashi, Hashem was making with him a Brit. Rashi makes out this Brit is very one-sided. Hashem was making the Brit with Abraham. Rashi could have said the two of them made a Brit together. 
but they didn't. And it occurs to me as I'm speaking that unlike the Brit with uh, at Har Sinai, where Hashem says basically, I'll look after you and you keep the mitzvot. It's a two-way um, deal. Here it's a one-way deal. Abraham actually doesn't have to do anything. It's all Hashem promising Abraham what's going to happen. And maybe that's why Rashi stresses that on this occasion, Koret Hashem et Avram Brit, Hashem made with Avram a covenant. It wasn't the two of them together. And that fits that it's only Hashem through the, the vision of this torch that passes between the animals and not Abraham. Anyway, that was all that to show that but the text does not leave the simple meaning. The simple meaning is this was a classic covenantal ceremony. That's why he cut the animals. Very nice. What doesn't make sense? Any questions? Why is this explanation not sufficient? Because he doesn't cut all the animals, does he? Because the Pasuk stressed, He did not cut the bird, or if that means species bird, he didn't cut the two birds. So he cut the nine animals, but the Pasuk goes out of its way to say he didn't cut the birds. Why not? According to the explanation we've seen so far, it's a regular Korate Brit. You cut up all the animals you've got. You don't leave some uncut. So why doesn't he cut the birds? That's why we need the next explanation. And indeed, Rashi's commenting on the words, because this is really the key to what Rashi's going to say next. The Torah stresses he didn't cut the birds. The birds remained uncut. And the animals were cut. Why? The other nations of the world are compared poetically or metaphorically to animals. But watch animals, bulls and rams and goats. And he brings Pesukim to prove all this. Savavuni Parim Rabim. David HaMelech is talking about the enemies who surrounded him and he calls them Parim. Bulls. And it also says in Daniel, Ha'ayel Asherita Balhal Kanaim now Daniel had visions in his dreams and they were weird and wonderful and he had a vision of different animals and he saw a ram and he says the ram which I saw with horns was the king of Madai Upras the king of Mede and the king of Persia so they're compared to Ailim to rams and Daniel also says Sapir doesn't mean bird here confusingly it means the um, roughness of the goat was the king of Greece. So, non-Jewish nations, the ones who enslave Israel, incidentally, um, because we've got their David's enemies, and then Paras, Madai, and Yavan. So that's long-term. Remember that, because we, the Midrash says that this wasn't just a vision of um, exile in Egypt, but it was a vision of things that were going to happen to the Jewish people for a long time, hence. And Rashi's going to say that as well. Um, so Rashi finds that the animals which are cut up are references to the many long-term enemies of Israel. And the Yisrael, and the Jews are compared to the Dav. As the Pasuk Shirim says, my Dav in the clefts of the rock. So it should now be a little bit clearer what's going on. The animals are cut up because they're the non-Jewish nations and they get cut up. But the birds are not cut up because the Jewish people are not to be cut up. So he, Rashi spells that out. batar Therefore, he cut up the animals. This is an allusion to the fact that the non-Jewish nations will be destroyed uh, and continually. In other words, from time to time, there will be a process by which the non-Jewish nations will eventually lose their power. Um, but it says the bird he did not cut. This is an allusion to the fact that the Jewish people will remain uncut. They will live forever. So what is Rashi doing? So Rashi is bringing a Midrashi explanation to explain what all this cutting is about. So Rashi, first of all, said there's a pshat. 
And that's very nice that he can't be animals because that's part of making a brick. And he was making a brick, as we will see in Pasuk Yudchet. But Rashi also said, commenting on the words, because he didn't cut the birds, which is why the simple explanation is deficient, that we now have cut animals and uncut birds. That's an allusion to non-Jewish nations uh, withering away and Jewish nation lasting forever. And that fits in with the big context of what's going on here, that Hashem is telling Abraham about the Jewish future. That this Brit Benavatarim is charting the course of Jewish destiny for eternity. And Rashi is very keen to adopt the Midrashi explanation that says Abraham is being told about the very, very long-term future. And then we've just got time for, um, no, we haven't got time for Pasuk Yud Aleph. Um, um, I tell you what, I think I will pause there. At the end of Pasuk Yud, that'll leave us ready to start Pasuk Yud Aleph, which has various twists and turns when we get to Rashi there. So we will pause there. I will wish everyone a Chag Sameach for Kabbalat HaTorah, for receiving the Torah. And Emir Tashem will meet again on next Sunday to carry on learning this part of the Torah. But are there any questions on what we learned tonight? Yes, Rob, can I ask? Yes. Um, please, if that's okay. Um, I know Rashi read Pasuk Vav Zayn al together. Yep. Um, I noticed that um, there's a breakup for Shishi, or Shishi is uh, before Pasuk Zayin. Is there any... Is there any significance to that? Or is that easy for Rashi just to, like, to the fact that it's split today or to read that all together? Okay. Um, I, I don't know uh, an answer precisely to your question of how Rashi relates to the, the gaps in the uh, Aliyot. But I would say, what I said is Rashi takes them all together, not because they form an unbreakable unit. That wasn't what I meant, which would then run, raise the question why mm -hmm. we stop reading in the middle. But because in order to understand Vav, you have to see Zayn and Chet. So in that sense, they, they form a unit, but only in terms yeah. of our need to understand them. Thank you. Okay. Thank you all. Good night. Thanks, Rob. Thank Thanks, Rob. Good night. Bye.